So this morning again, we begin a new series on this book of Galatians. And like when we went through Philippians as a church last spring going into the fall, what we'll be doing in this series is we will be going verse by verse through God's Word. And if you remember, when we began Philippians, we talked about how what we'll be doing is called, quote, expository preaching. And that's a term that's thrown around a lot these days, but all it means is that each week we'll go through God's Word here in in Galatians, we'll exposit the verses, explain the verses, meaning see what they mean in themselves, and then as we do that, we'll be able to apply it rightly to ourselves. And so that's what we'll be doing in this series on Galatians. And concerning this series, let me just share with you two things from the outset before we even get into verses 1 through 5 this morning. Two things. First, why we're doing this book of Galatians. And then second, a little introduction to the book as a whole. So first, as to why we're going through this book of Galatians, the main reason for choosing it for this spring is because when I started at ECC here as a senior pastor almost exactly a year ago now, I always thought that the two first books that I'd love our church to go through, the, the, one of the first books I'd love our church to go through, would either be Philippians or Galatians. Philippians, because of its emphasis on joy in Christ and life and death, as we saw, and Galatians, because it's so clear on the gospel message. And we ended up going through Philippians first because I really wanted us to see the beauty of Jesus in himself. But then I realized that with Philippians covered and with us as a church growing and changing a little bit by God's grace, and especially as a new year is here, it'd also be great for us now as a church and individually to be really sure of and to deeply understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what this book of Galatians is really going to help us with. And on this, the point is not that we don't know the gospel. If we're Christians, of course we know the gospel. And the the gospel, on one hand, is a simple message about Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners. But also, as we'll see in this letter, it would be great for us as God's people and as a church to to be able to be really firm in our beliefs of what the gospel truly is and, maybe just as importantly, what the gospel isn't as well. And on this, as you might know, it was this letter of Galatians, along with the letter of Romans, that really helped spark the Protestant Reformation and a renewed understanding of the biblical gospel and history. Because while the book of Romans is a, is a little bit longer and a more detailed version of this letter, it was Martin Luther's messages and commentary on Galatians that was so important in the Protestant Reformation. And the reason for this is because hundreds of years ago, it was becoming clear that the Roman Catholic Church was a little bit off biblically, especially off on their message of salvation in the gospel. And so it was the books of Romans and Galatians that really started to show the masses the true biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're going to be doing this book. But that then leads us to a little introduction to the background of Galatians so we understand it a little bit more. So this letter of Galatians was one of the earliest letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. It might have been the earliest letter. And it was not written to just one church in one city, but it was written to a province or a region, if you will. 
Because as we know from the book of Acts, what the Apostle Paul would do is he'd travel around and he'd evangelize and set up churches in cities, which were, of course, in regions. And then what he'd do is he'd follow up often with those churches by writing letters to them. And for example, some cities in the New Testament that he wrote letters to would include cities like Philippi and Ephesus and Thessalonica and Corinth. While some regions in the New Testament times would include regions like Macedonia, Asia, Achaia, and Galatia. And so here in Galatians, this technically is a letter to a region and churches in that region. And in fact, if you look down at the end of verse 2, if you want to look down, you can see that. Because you can see Paul opens up this letter with, to the churches of Galatia. And the reason this is important is because this then sets the context for what happened in history that sparked the writing of this letter. Because as we're about to see, this letter was written primarily to combat false teaching and a false gospel that was being circulated at this time in this region. And therefore, knowing that it's written to a region shows us, importantly, that it wasn't just one false teacher or one church that was starting to stir things up. Instead, even though this is a very early letter, perhaps written as early as 48 AD, so 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus, still, over that short length of time after Jesus' resurrection, false ideas about Jesus and the gospel were already spreading all over this whole region of Galatia. And so Paul writes this letter to these churches to be firm about the seriousness of this, telling them and telling us about the true gospel and warning them and warning us about any false gospel. So that's the background of this letter. But one, one final thing on this. So what's going on here is false teachers have come into this region and they're twisting the gospel message and many people, unfortunately, are buying into it. But also, technically... What we'll see is it wasn't just the message itself that was being attacked that sparked this letter, but the true messengers of the gospel, like Paul, were being attacked as well. And and this happens today too. Because think about it. People can and do attack the true message of Christianity in two main ways. First, they can do so by attacking and changing the message itself, by twisting it. But then second, they can also do so by attacking the messengers, right? The people who actually believe and talk about the real message. And so that's most specifically what we're going to see throughout this whole letter. It's a letter primarily about the one true message of Jesus, the gospel. But then as we're going to see, Paul also throughout this letter sometimes feels the need that he needs to defend himself as a true messenger, not, not for his own sake, but because he's relaying the true message of Jesus Christ. Which finally then brings us to our text in Galatians 1, 1 through 5. And on these verses, we're just going to have two sections this morning, two sections. And they'll have to do with those ideas of messenger and message that we just talked about. And first, in our first section of verses 1 and 2, we'll see Paul right away bring up this issue of his authority as a messenger. Authority as a messenger. Meaning, if you think about it, in the context of all this false teaching and false ideas, he'll talk about the authority that he has behind his true gospel message. And for us, what we'll see here is the authority that we have behind our same message. 
That's our first section. Then second, verses 3 through 5, since the message itself was being twisted, in these verses then Paul will give us a quick summary of the gospel message itself. So those will be our two sections. In sum, first, the authority of the messenger Paul, which will show us the authority behind our gospel message, and then second, the message itself. Well, that's, we will then begin our first section on the authority behind Paul, the messenger, and therefore the authority behind our message in verses 1 and 2. And yet, right away before we read those verses, I want to tell you from the outset, we usually don't do this, but I want to tell you from the outset where exactly we're going on these verses and specifically how these verses are going to apply to us. And I want to do this even before we read the the verses because when we read the Bible, we not only want to understand it correctly, but we want to apply it correctly as well. And yet sometimes, if we're not careful, we can easily apply it in mistaken ways. And I think often in introductions to letters that can sometimes happen. And here's what I mean. So as you can see in the first three words of this letter in verse 1, you can see it there. Look down. Paul says here that he's, quote, Paul an Apostle. Paul, an apostle. And that, in a nutshell, is his authority. Because the word apostolos, which we get apostle from, the word apostolos in Greek just literally meant sent one. And it was Jesus himself who, as you might know, chose disciples and called them apostles. And as a reminder of that, hear this from Mark chapter 3, quote, And he, Jesus, appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so the term apostle carried with it a huge authority and calling from Jesus. In fact, this is important to know, Paul later in 1 Corinthians 14 will list the early church apostles as the number one spiritual gift given from God to the church. The number one spiritual gift, apostles. And that's because the apostles were those who had seen the risen Jesus, like Paul did on the Damascus Road. And they were those uniquely sent out, apostled, to speak on Jesus' behalf and act authoritatively for him. And so, for Paul then, as you can see, that's the argument he's about to make about his authority. And therefore, about the truthfulness of his gospel message, that he really is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That he genuinely was uniquely sent by Jesus and that therefore his message is from Jesus. That's Paul's authority. But for us then, the reason I want us to see this right away and talk about how we'll apply this is because we can then easily hear all that and and apply it incorrectly by saying something like how God called Paul to have authority, and so he gives us similar authority too. Or, more commonly, we can think verses like this talk about how Paul had a calling and then apply it by saying we have callings too. But, but the point I hope we see throughout our time this morning is that if we, had, if we apply that idea of Paul's apostleship in those sort of ways, I think we'd really be missing the point. Instead, I, I want to be clear from the outset here this morning that this message is mainly going to be about apostolic authority. Apostolic authority. Meaning, the real authority that Jesus Christ uniquely gave his apostles. And since we're not apostles, and since there are no more apostles today, this does not apply to us directly. 
Rather, what I really hope we see this morning is that these verses here and this talk about apostleship and authority applies to us not directly, but like in a, a connected chain, a connected chain, a chain of authority that starts with God and then eventually comes down to us. And you can think of the chain in this way. All authority starts with and, of course, comes from God. Let's say God the Father. And then it goes through Jesus, his son, and what Jesus did. And then Jesus gave authority uniquely in his message to his apostles, like Paul, through the Holy Spirit. But then the question is, then where does it go from there? Does God, does Jesus, does the Holy Spirit then give us authority like he gave his apostles? And the answer is no. Instead, the authority from Jesus through the Holy Spirit to his apostles then goes to the written word because this is what the apostles wrote and taught. And therefore, we have authority when we pay attention to what they said. And so the chain of authority goes from the Father to the Son, then Jesus to the apostles, and then it goes to what they wrote in their word, and then and only then authority comes to us. And so I say that from the outset, we're going to keep seeing that this morning, especially on this first section. If that doesn't make total sense yet, that's okay. We'll talk more about it as we go on. But now with that said, let's read all of verse 1 and see Paul talk about his authority he has as an apostle. So look down your Bibles, all of Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So as we've seen, Paul starts by saying how he's an apostle. He has this unique authority from Jesus behind his message. But now for the rest of verse 1, notice two things about this apostleship, this authority. First, what it isn't from, and then second, what it is from. So first, concerning what it isn't from, notice that it's not from men. Meaning it isn't people who gave him this unique apostolic authority. Nor was it through man. And this is very similar, right, to from men, but through man probably emphasizes the fact that it wasn't one mere person, one man, keeping Paul an apostle. And on this is a a really quick, but I think interesting side note that I learned as I was studying this. Notice, Paul's next words after not through man are but through Jesus Christ. And, And if you think about it, and I didn't see this until I was studying this for prep for this, this actually then, right there, it's a quick proof in your Bible that Paul saw Jesus as no mere man, but also as God. Because he says his apostleship isn't through man, but through Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus of Nazareth was and is a man. But apparently, Paul knew he wasn't and isn't merely a man. But that's what Paul says his apostleship isn't from. It isn't from men, nor through men, man. And taking those together... It shows us that Paul sees his apostleship, his authority, as not man-centered. Right? And this was important back then. It still applies and is important for us today because back then it was, it was common to think that your authority was all about you having certain people, these, these man-focused accolades and accomplishments on your side with your authority coming from certain people honoring you or respecting you. And some people still think like that today in Christian circles concerning who we should listen to. Right? Honoring those and believing those who other people recommend, the really popular people. 
But notice, Paul says his authority and truthfulness concerning his message about Jesus doesn't come from people like that. It's not really about man. Instead, where does his apostleship and his authority behind his message come from? Well, from the rest of what he says in verse 1. First, his apostleship and his authority is through Jesus Christ. And this especially makes sense when we remember, as we talked about earlier, that Jesus is the one who chose certain people and named them apostles or sent ones. And so Paul is just saying that it's Jesus Christ, who remembers no mere man who sent him. So Jesus gave Paul his authority and his message. But then also, even further back, as you can see, it's God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, who made Paul an apostle and gave him authority. And we may wonder, why did Paul mention here that the Father raised Jesus from the dead? Right away. And it could be that it's just part of the gospel message, which it is, but it's probably more intentional than that. Because mentioning here that Jesus was raised from the dead shows us that the Jesus who sent Paul, who made Paul an apostle, Paul is saying is still alive and still sending him, if you will. Jesus is alive and still supporting Paul, and what Paul has to say on his behalf is one of his sent ones. And Jesus is still doing that today. And so that's what Paul's apostleship wasn't and is. It wasn't from men. It was from God, from Jesus. And concerning us then, this then is where that chain of authority from earlier becomes important. Because concerning us, And how then we have any authority. And how we can know the truthfulness of our message. First, it all starts with the same reality that Jesus is alive. He really is. He rose from the dead 2,000 years ago and he's still alive. But then also, concerning how our risen Jesus has decided to speak with authority, it's Jesus who decided in his plan to send out apostles to give them unique authority to speak and act for him. And then it's these apostles that founded the early New Testament churches and it's these apostles who wrote and influenced the New Testament books that we still have today. And so that really is how a statement like this in Galatians 1.1 applies to you and me through that chain. Like God to Jesus, to the apostles, to their writings in the New Testament and finally to us. We have authority written down through the apostles. And so we have authority when we pay attention to and only when we pay attention to what's written here. And and, and this then is the right response to people who say things like, how come Jesus never wrote a book? How come he didn't decide to write something down? And the answer from the Bible is, is plain. It's that Jesus, of course could have written books, and a really important book, but he didn't because instead his plan was always in his ministry, you can see it, to call to himself and teach certain apostles who had this unique authority to then speak on his behalf. And then they, in his plan, wrote and influenced books that we still have today, which are the New Testament. And so again, I know we're repeating this, but the point is what they've written comes from Jesus. That's why this book really is the Word of God. And the Old Testament was written by prophets, people who spoke for God. And the New Testament is the prophetic apostles. That's why someone like the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 can amazingly call his fellow apostle Paul's writings, quote, Scripture. 
which is a huge claim. And finally, to bring it home to us, that's why the Bible alone is our authority today still because the New Testament is Jesus' word to us through his apostles. And, And on the flip side, this then also is why when someone doesn't uphold the Bible as the sole source of authority and instead looks for similar authority elsewhere or thinks that they have equal words and hearings from God, they're also going against Jesus' ways. Because not only did Jesus not write a book, but he also didn't plan to have it that all Christians after his resurrection would speak directly from him. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't plan to have it that all Christians after his resurrection would speak directly from him. He could have, but he didn't. And I hope you really get this because often in our especially individualistic Western culture, we don't apply this rightly. And and, in good intentions and trying to have a better relationship with God, we can though kind of act like Jesus' apostolic plan isn't the case. Because often in our our individualistic ideas, well, since I'm saved and I'm in a right relationship with God, now God or Jesus, or more specifically often, now the Holy Spirit speaks to me directly like this. But just like the Jesus never wrote a book argument, this misses Jesus' plan as well. Because think about why that doesn't even work even just here from Galatians 1. Because think about the reason why Paul can use his apostolic authority to make the claim that he has the true gospel message is because in Jesus' plan, again, he decided to send certain people, not all Christians, but certain people, apostles, who would speak authoritatively on his behalf. And so think about it. If it were the case that we all essentially could hear directly from God on our own, then this talk about Paul's apostleship being the authority that proves his message wouldn't work. Because all his opponents need to say is, Paul, that's great, but who really cares that much about you being an apostle? Because we all hear from God. We all hear from the Holy Spirit, and we all speak equally for God. But the point is, in Jesus' plan, that's not true. That's not how Jesus set it up. Again, remember the chain. God gave authority to his son, apostles. They spoke in his name. They wrote books. And now we hear those apostles in the Bible, which means we hear from God and get authority from our message from the Bible alone. And yet one last quick side note on this before we do move on to verse 2. And I promise we won't go this slowly <laughs> through the whole book of Galatians. You may be wondering why I keep saying the apostles wrote and influenced the New Testament. And this is just a hope for your understanding of how the Bible works. And I say that because most specifically, I hope you know, the books of the New Testament are often called apostolic. Because what happened in very early church history is that when the early Christians were sending around various writings, the main characteristic that our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago used to see if something was truly from God was its apostolicity, as they called it. Meaning, was the writing from an apostle? Now, it didn't necessarily need to be penned by an apostle, but it still needed to have a close connection to an apostle and his teaching. And that's why books like Mark, for example, are in your Bible. Because although Mark himself was not an apostle, Mark traveled closely with Peter. And many people even think it's possible that Mark, the whole book of Mark, could be a long sermon by the apostle Peter. And the same is true for books like Luke and Acts, 
because both of those are written by Luke, who was an apostle, but again, we know that Luke was close to and traveled with Paul. And so even though all the books in the New Testament are penned by apostles, they're all apostolic meaning they carry this Jesus-given, Jesus-planned apostolic authority. And for us, that's how Jesus decided that we'd hear from him. That finally leads us to verse 2. So let's look at that now. Go ahead and look at your Bibles, verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So, so this verse may not seem important at verse, but it actually makes our point even more clear. Because notice, Paul calls all the other Christians with him brothers. Or brothers and sisters, because that Greek word adelphoi could include men and women together. And calling them, this shows that Paul knows that he's one with them in God's family. But again, notice what he doesn't do is he doesn't call them fellow apostles. Nor does he even hint that they have equal authority with him. They were equally loved by God, cared for by their father, known by Jesus. All that's true, and Paul and the apostles were no better, but again, in Jesus' plan, he decided to have a small number of these brothers be official apostles. And so, I know we're repeating that, but I really hope we get it. But with all that said now, with verses 1 and 2 covered, I hope you see, as the title of this message in your bulletin says, what's really at stake for us then in these first two verses of Galatians, and importantly, for how we decide to live our Christian lives and for how we relate to God, it's not only understanding the authority behind Paul's message, but it's also really understanding the authority behind our message, the authority for why we believe what we believe. Because I hope you've seen what this all means is that the authority for what we believe to be true for our message does not lie in us. And so to be crystal clear, the authority and truthfulness of our gospel message does not lie in things like our inklings or our emotions or our feelings. The authority and truthfulness of our message does not lie in how much we've changed, although that might be used to show the truthfulness of it. Nor does the authority behind our message that we know and believe lie in things like the institutional church, like the Roman Catholics teach. Nor do we believe what we believe because certain entertaining and good teachers said it. And to make this really personal, nor does the authority and the truthfulness of what we believe lie in something like your pastor or any pastor. And that's why you really shouldn't believe or listen to what I or any pastor or preacher has to say unless it is deeply rooted in what the apostles wrote. Instead of all that, technically and very importantly, the authority behind the gospel message that we know and that the world so desperately needs is this Jesus-planned apostolic authority. Jesus came, lived, died, rose, and he didn't write a book. Instead, he commissioned apostles who would then go out in his name, establish the early church, write inerrant truth for Jesus himself, and now we hear Jesus through those apostles in God's word alone. We don't hear God's word then by listening to our own inner thoughts. That's essentially making us little apostles. Instead, we read the apostolic word to hear the true message from Jesus and to hear from Jesus. So that's our first section, by far our longest section. 
That's the authority behind Paul, the messenger, and therefore the authority behind our message. That now leads quickly to our second section, which would be about the message itself. And this will be a shorter section because this is more similar to what we'll keep seeing throughout Galatians. What we'll do now is we're going to read verses 3 through 5. And as we do so, since we now know that this book is about the true gospel, notice here at the onset of this letter what Paul decides to make clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ at the beginning. So let's read those verses now, verses 3 through 5 of Galatians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So in verse 3, the grace to you and peace is typical of Paul's letters, as you might know. And as we said almost a year ago now in Philippians, grace to you makes sense to start a letter like this because what we need above all else as we're reading this letter and as we live our lives is grace to us. And then peace from God makes sense in the Roman context because God's peace is better than the Roman peace, the famous Pax Romana. And then peace from God fits in the Jewish context because God's peace is the fulfillment of the whole shalom peace that God was promising in the whole Old Testament. And so that's verse 3, and that's pretty typical Paul. But then what isn't typical Paul in his opening of his letters is what, the, what he then does in verses 4 and 5. Because as you can see in verse 4, he goes off explaining a little bit what Jesus did in the gospel. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. And then in verse 5, to end the intro of this letter, Paul then goes on to say the intended result of the gospel. To whom? To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so that's Paul's summary, if you will, of the message quickly in verses 3 through 5. Grace to you in peace, but then specifically on the gospel, number one, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And then number two, it's all according to God's will and for God's glory. And of course, we could spend a lot of time of each of those, but for this morning, I want us to think about why Paul would include those things to start off a letter like this in Galatians. Because as we keep saying, this letter is addressing an issue where the gospel is being twisted. And you can see that becoming clearly in the next verse where Paul's about to say how astonished he is that they're changing and turning to a different gospel. And so this whole book is about the true gospel. And so the question to think about is, why would Paul decide to mention these couple of things in verses 4 and 5 about the gospel? Especially in that context of false teaching. And to answer that, think with me a bit more first concerning what Paul says in verse 4, but then also what he says in verse 5, both in the context of false teaching. So concerning verse 4, at first it kind of looks like pretty basic gospel at the beginning. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Right? And that means right away Paul wants us to know that Jesus died for sins. But especially important for us to know today is that in false gospels, that is often denied. Because it can be taught, and it has been taught incorrectly, that Jesus didn't die for sin, but he just died to give us an example of love. Or he died to suffer physically so you will never suffer physically in this life and just be blessed. And so it's important to know, basic to the Gospels, Jesus gave himself for our sins. But what is most unique about verse 4, especially for Paul, is that final statement in, the, in that or the middle statement, that Jesus gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age. And why that's unique is because this then shows us that perhaps what these false teachers back then were hinting at, 
and it's especially what a lot of false teachers today talk like, is that the gospel is that Jesus came to deliver you so that you could have such a great life now in this present age, or in Paul's situation, so that you shouldn't be persecuted in this present age. And so by saying that Jesus gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age, Paul may be saying here, as he says clearly elsewhere, that the gospel is not that Jesus died so you can have your best life now or not be persecuted. Instead, the age we are living in now is evil. And Jesus did die for our sins, and he does deliver us, and so now we are forgiven, and we are right with God, but our hope isn't in this age. It's still in the age to come, when Jesus comes back and makes everything right again. So that's perhaps why Paul said what he said in verse 4, but I think more clear is what's going on in verse 5. Because there it's a little obvious what he's doing. So he talks about the gospel briefly in verse 4. But then he, verse 5, to end the intro of this letter, he wants to be clear what the gospel is ultimately for. And that's the glory of God. And in the context of false teaching, this is probably because, as Paul will make clear about these false teachers later in the letter, what's, all, what's always a huge sign of false teachings about Jesus And this is true whether you're in a one-on-one conversation with somebody or whether you're in a small group Bible study or whether you're hearing false teaching from a local church pulpit or whether you're watching false teaching on so-called Christian TV. What's always a huge sign of false teaching is this man-centeredness in their teaching, in their gospel. It's kind of the subtle idea that the gospel is all about you and me. And so Paul's point in verse 5 is that the gospel is not all about you and me because notice, we're barely mentioned verses 3 through 5. All we contribute is our sins and our needing to be rescued. Instead, the gospel in a nutshell is primarily about God. It's according to God's will in verse 4 and it's all for God's glory in verse 5. We get the saving, we get the help, amen, but God gets all the glory. And so that's a quick summary of the gospel messages in verses 3 through 5. And more could be said. And Paul goes on in Galatians, as we're going to see, the emphasis really becomes about justification by faith alone. But here to open this letter, he wants to be clear. Churches back then and to us today, that the gospel is Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this age. And it doesn't really center on us, but on God and his glory. And so that is verses 1 through 5 of Galatians. And a summary of what we saw because we'll apply them in a second. First, in verses 1 through 2, Paul showed forth his Jesus-given authority. And one last time, applying that to us, this is how we have any authority behind our message as well. Not because we're apostles, but because Jesus' Jesus's apostles wrote and influenced the New Testament books. And then second, in verses 3 through 5, the gospel message was pretty clear. We're delivered from our sins in the present evil age, but overall, it's for the glory of God. And so, as we close, church, I just encourage you to apply it to yourself, to take what we saw in either of those two sections, on the authority behind our message or on the message itself, and really apply it to your heart and how you think and how you live your Christian life. Because as I was, as I was preparing this, I thought of other applications we could, we could talk about, but then I realized that when we think about it, it's these two things that if we really got them and agreed on them and lived in light of them, would set us up individually and as a church to grow and to be so unified on the gospel as we start going throughout this letter. 
Because think about it, so much individual Christian confusion and then corporate church division comes from misunderstanding the two things we talked about this morning. First, because we can be so confused on where our authority and the truthfulness from our message comes from. Some people can think it comes from certain leaders or certain pastors or others think it can come from my feelings and my emotions and my hearings from God, but all of those are not our authority. Instead, as we've been saying, our authority is from the word alone because this book is from Jesus' apostles to us. That's what the church has believed for thousands of years and so if we want to be Jesus people, it means we must be Bible people. And then second, the other issue that often confuses individual Christians and churches corporately is the question of what even is the message? And that's why verses 3 through 5 and really this whole letter are helpful because the one true gospel message is about our sins in this evil age, yes, but ultimately it's about Jesus who gave himself for us and delivered us from this age and is preparing for us a beautiful age to come. And then knowing all that to be true, our only response as we begin this letter and continually throughout this letter in conclusion is verse 5, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.